Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. My name is Pavel Havlíček and I'm a research fellow at the Association for International Affairs, which is a private-based think tank specializing in foreign and security policy areas. And I recommend Visegrad Inside podcast. It's the 6th of February, 2023. I'm Miles Maftian, editorial director here at Visegrad Insight. What are we talking about? Elections, elections, elections. What a year we're having in CEE and what a year it's going to be throughout the region. We've analyzed the results of the Czech elections thoroughly. We had our State of Czechia event with tons of, of great insights gathered from experts within Czechia. And it's really interesting now to actually see the aftermath with president-elect Pavel voicing concerns that bugging devices might be left behind by the outgoing pro-Kremlin staff. Looks like the happenings in the Prague Castle are the making of a Cold War era spy thriller. But who knows, it, maybe it's simply anxiety tremors after the failed smear campaign of Babish. When we look around, turning specifically to Slovakia, there was a motion for early elections passed through the parliament with 92 votes. So the date for the elections in Slovakia are now set for the 30th of September. It's going to be interesting to see what unfolds in the coming months leading to the election and what ramifications the Czech elections have in this regard towards the Slovak people. But that's not all for elections in the region. Lithuania is preparing for municipal elections. Elections there will be held on the 5th of March. And in the same day, Estonia is also preparing for elections scheduled on the 5th of March. It's safe to say that one of the highest groupings of issues that are running the election cycles would be internal policy, so domestic policy, foreign policy, and most likely the, the main central concern, security issues. It's interesting that... Uh, a popular survey that was conducted between the 30th of January and the 2nd of February among citizens of a voting age online and by phone were showing that Kaya Kalas is essentially the most popular for Estonia's next prime minister. Of course, putting all of this together, this may be linked to her staunch take on security and her Russia policy, but certainly we'll keep an eye on, on what's coming there. Now, apart from what's happening in the region, if we zoom out to the EU level, there was an interesting occurrence that happened. So the European Parliament voted in favor of more transparency in political advertising. So we have these new rules, and these new rules are going to include mandatory disclosure of the commissioning of political advertising and an EU-wide online register in which platforms such as Facebook or Google, they're going to have to post data in real time. And what this means, according to the European Parliament website, is that ad providers can only use personal data that is clearly submitted for online political advertising. This means that micro-targeting, meaning the use of consumer and demographic data to determine individuals' interests, will no longer be possible. And this obviously matters a great deal from the standpoint of democratic security and sort of this new wave of technological advancements that we've seen. And this of course, links to elections in the region as well. As we know from Brexit to uh, the 2016 U.S. presidential elections to what's essentially going to come uh, in the region, this is a story that will drastically change 
the way in which political advertising can influence domestic politics. Finally, when we look towards Ukraine, we see that there are a lot of developments, obviously, every single day. But one thing, when you sort of zoom out a little bit, you see that we're coming close to the one-year marker of the war. It obviously comes at an interesting time. So just last week, Ursula von der Leyen and most of her European Commission visited Kiev. We have a detailed interview on the second part of this podcast, breaking down what was at stake and what was accomplished during the visit. And we touch upon the idea of how this entire visit looks from the standpoint of the corruption scandal that was happening in Ukraine as well. We know that now Ukraine's cabinet is being reshuffled. The defense minister is actually going to be replaced by the head of the Ukraine military intelligence. And it comes after a major corruption scandal involving the pricing of food purchases for the military embroiling the defense ministry. This development will cover much more in the interview, and we'll dive into that in a second. But just a reminder for all of our listeners to subscribe to Vizhgrad Insight for not only this election season, where we're bringing you up-to-the-minute coverage and closed-door events with regional experts, but also for what's to come in the near future. I'm delighted to sit down with Pavel Havlicek. Pavel is a research fellow at the Association for International Affairs. His research focus is mostly on Eastern Europe, especially Ukraine and Russia and the Eastern Partnership. Pavel, I know you also deal with questions of security, disinformation, and strategic communication. So what we kind of wanted to to do today was just to discuss a little bit what happened uh, on the 3rd of February. So Ursula von der Leyen and most of her European Commission actually went and, and visited Kiev. She said, well, there were a lot of things that were essentially said, but the most the, the main takeaway here is, is that there's no rigid timelines on EU accession. And she really underlined the process as merits-based, although the actual political trajectory always varies from one candidate to the other. So I think in other words, it's there's no rigid timelines, but we have goals, right? I guess from my standpoint, I'm kind of trying to understand what were the expectations prior to this meeting from, from both sides? What were both sides essentially trying to achieve and, and what was actually accomplished? So do we actually consider this meeting a success at all? Indeed, the latest meeting of the EU-Ukraine um, summit was... Uh, um, a good success actually and um, sort of a sign where the limits of the possible in between the two parties currently lie. The expectations before, uh, from before uh, the summit was uh, that the European Union really wanted to show and illustrate the whole complexity with which it actually supports Ukraine. it was on multiple fronts um, when it comes to uh, the context of the Russian aggression against Ukraine and uh, the Western community. Uh, more than 50 billion uh, European um, uh, euros uh, invested in Ukraine. This was a sum that was actually including different levels of the mutual support, including military, including economic uh, and energy um, aid or also microfinancial assistance that was distributed 
to Ukraine from the EU as such and EU institutions, but then also the EU member states. So multiple support on uh, uh, different levels. Uh, that was something that the EU really wanted to show uh, quite clearly. Also, the European Union wanted to follow up on its previously agreed, uh, agreed plan of action, which is indeed structured around the idea of future Ukraine's uh, steps towards the European Union uh, that were outlined in uh, June last year when Ukraine was given um, uh, the candidate status by EU27. So this was also an occasion where the European uh, Commission actually outlined a number of still uh, out um, uh, outstanding um, issues and, and uh, challenges that lie ahead of Ukraine, but also um, this was an occasion actually to present uh, the, uh, so to say, um, until today, uh, progress that Ukraine has achieved on its uh, route uh, to the European Union when it comes to different chapters and enlargement uh, agenda. So this was indeed um, an occasion from the European Union side that uh, was very well used, even if the diverging, to some degree diverging uh, po uh, points of view and diverging uh, perceptions of the EU members were uh, something that uh, had to be taken into consideration, especially when it comes to the future uh, steps on the enlargement track of Ukraine. From the Ukrainian point of view, this was indeed a, a sort of a very important occasion to illustrate that Ukraine is not on its own in this war with Russia, that uh, Ukraine has uh, allies and it has future. The future is on its uh, way towards the European Union. This is the future that lies after the war ends. So this was uh, indeed a very important occasion to present uh, that to the international community, including the Russian Federation. For Ukraine, this was also an opportunity to outline a series of expectations that it has from the European Union and its member states, including uh, standing up for its sovereignty and territorial integrity, standing up for international and transitional justice that are to come um, already now, and especially after the war when it comes to the war criminals, headed above all by the Russian president Vladimir Putin, and a number of other occasions in which Ukraine still greatly relies on the European bloc actually for its support when it comes to financial help, when it comes to economic, trade or energy uh, support. These are all areas that actually Ukraine uh, needs the European backing and also uh, it achieved new concessions, especially when it comes to uh, some of the areas. Um, it's a peace plan the so-called Zelensky 10-point plan was acknowledged by the European Union. This was very significant for the future resolution of the conf conflict. So this was indeed a successful negotiation time. 
which uh, which was then reflected in the final communique from the summit. Uh, then also, uh, what was important was that the European Union promised actually to deliver on a closer uh, trade and economic integration of Ukraine within the EU's single market as well, very important final decision. Uh, to add to that, there was also um, sort of the commitment to uh, the Ukrainian uh, future steps towards the European Union uh, outlined by the enlargement process. And here, obviously, Ukraine has high expectations for the next steps, especially when it comes to the actual start of the accession talks, which it would love to it would like to start uh, already this year so this was also very important and maybe finally also that um european union also agreed that actually ukraine will be um, will be also uh, supporting it towards the very end to uh, of of the, of the war so this was also um, important and then reflected in military terms also in the area of justice, but also the post-war reconstruction to which the European Union recommitted itself once again. Ukraine's prime minister said that his country has this ambition to, to join the EU within the next two years. Some would say that that's magical thinking. Others would think that in terms of a merit-based response, that this is actually fairly accurate. Have you seen any difference with this latest meeting in terms of the changing relationship with the EU in the coming years? So what what would this actually look like? So let's assume in the next years Ukraine has this chance of joining the EU, but they're not in NATO. So what happens then? Is it even possible for Ukraine, given its security crises and the ongoing war, to join EU but not be in NATO? So one of the highly disputed um, elements of the mutual exchange from before the EU-Ukraine summit was indeed a question of the uh, future Ukrainian membership in, in the European Union, which uh, from the point of view of uh, Ukrainian uh, Prime Minister Denis Mihal was actually supposed to happen in already a couple of years, uh, specifically two years that he referred to as a period uh, during which Ukrainian uh, Ukraine could actually become a fully-fledged member of the European Union. This is obviously a highly rhetorical uh, advocating point. This was um, sort of an information, piece of information that was distributed especially for the domestic public, but also uh, to articulate clearly that Ukraine wants to be very ambitious on its uh, future European efforts. This was uh, also reflected in the in the state uh, in the statements and rhetoric from before uh, the summit. But uh, obviously, we see that the picture is much more complex, and it is much more complicated that than many uh, maybe uh, even in Ukraine itself very much expected. At around the the summit, and this was also one of the uh, issues that were presented during the summit, was um, analytical report produced by the European Commission outlining and comparing actually the progress achieved so far on the enlargement track by Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova. And from that report and the three individual reports that were actually released, analytical reports, it became clear that while Ukraine is prepared in several of these areas were well, uh, 
for example, including foreign affairs or security policy, then on multiple others, there are significant gaps and still much more work needed actually to uh, more uh, align with the European acquis and actually uh, sort of looking for and achieving more of uh, Ukrainian integration within uh, the European Union uh, system of body of law. So this was something that uh, was actually sort of counter serving as a counterbalance from the European Union side to say, yes, we are with you, but at the same time, uh, there is still a lot of work to be done by you. We are here to help and the EU is committed to, su uh, to supply uh, the technical and also uh, expert know-how uh, to actually distribute a financial help for implementation some of these law norms and values that Ukraine needs to take over as part of the process. But this is uh, indeed not to happen within the next two years, but uh, rather several uh, years that are ahead. Obviously, the big question and the big elephant in the room is of the Russian aggression, ongoing Russian aggression against Ukraine. For a country at, at war, at war uh, this is actually uh, a profound challenge to do the job, to do the work actually on two different fronts, both domestically to commit itself to the reform process and prepare the country for the future enlargement in, in, into the European Union and at the same time actually to uh, keep um, sort of defending itself against the Russian aggression and uh, bo keep bolstering its own resilience and in fact also military capacity to withstand the pressure from Russia. So this is actually a huge challenge that Ukraine is facing uh, right now. Mm. And it's not clear that uh, the country will have the capacity to actually pursue both of the tracks simultaneously or rather prioritize one now and then uh, focus on the other later. Obviously, uh, when you are facing such an existential threat uh, by the Russian uh, aggressors every day, here is uh, the obvious priority. Um, that, however, needs to be um, matched with um, uh, also uh, measures and reform efforts at the domestic front, which is which is actually mutually in reinforcing. Here is obviously a big question of what NATO has to do with this. Um, we know that, uh, for example, in the case of Western Balkan countries, it was usually the case, and we know it also from Central Europe, that NATO was actually easier out of the two alliances to enter, uh, since the membership was um, maybe less heavy on the technical side and more political, or rather geopolitical, in the final uh, sort of decision-making by uh, the Euro-Atlantic community, but that does not mean that uh, countries that are not in NATO would be sort of uh, excluded. Uh, and here, obviously, uh, the membership of an entrance of countries such as Finland or Sweden in uh, the 1990s or um, much later, for example, um, uh, some of the 
Western Balkan countries that are having uh, both processes uh, pursued at the same time, this is something that uh, is actually um, not mutually uh, exclusive. Um, for example, uh, finally, if we have a look at Austria, a country that is formerly a neutral country, um, outside of um, outside of NATO, which is actually enshrined also in its own constitution, uh, and yet they were able to enter um, European Union bloc also without necessarily being member of uh, of NATO. So here uh, the question is open, even if obviously it is of strategic importance that the war is at one point finally resolved and Ukraine has uh, full control over over its its territory. This is actually uh, important, and I think this might be one of the crucial challenges or dilemmas also for some of the member states to decide about the future membership of Ukraine uh, within uh, within the European Union. Thanks for that, Pavel. The focus right now is obviously on the war, but I have to ask about Ukraine's corruption problems. These are certainly not far from solved. Just last week, there were targeted coordinated searches on high-profile persons who may be linked to corruption. Is this a real priority, or is this just a show for incoming EU officials? Obviously, when speaking about the domestic front, what comes to mind is indeed uh, the Ukrainian fight against corruption and promoting the rule of law culture. This is an integral part of the enlargement process as well. And since 2019, when the enlargement methodology was actually reformed, both uh, chapters on judiciary and the rule of law became much even more significant uh, than than before that. And these are the first chapters, two chapters to be open and the last two to be closed. So Ukraine, uh, realizing that it is actually fighting against the enemy at two fronts, both in uh, the east and southern front against the Russian occupant, but also in the rear against the malign practices efforts to undermine uh, the statehood by corruption, by undermining institutions and good governance. These are all processes that Ukrainian leadership, headed by Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukraine president, actually need to take very seriously. What has happened recently, as caused, uh, as caused by the major um, corruption affair and scheme, um, going throughout the government, but especially being concentrated at the Ministry of Defense, was um, actually uh, a reason why the Ukraine president decided to go for uh, a major um, uh, ref sort of um, change and um, reshuffle of high-level positions within several ministries, including the Ministry of Defense, of which uh, the deputy minister Shapovalov was actually removed for manipulating with prices of um, the basic goods and supplies for Ukrainian army. Just later after that, just yesterday, there was also um, a decision uh, made to remove the Ukrainian minister of defense, Reznikov, and replace him with uh, the 
previous uh, representatives and commander of the military intelligence, Budalov. So this was one of the signs that was clearly to assure both Ukrainian citizens that no corruption is to be tolerated, but also a signal to be sent to the international community and especially those countries that are providing Ukraine with military systems, military equipment, and also donating funds for purchases of those that none of the corruption schemes are to be watched and tolerated, but rather that corruption is going to be dealt with at the very highest level. And the sacrifice of Mr. Reznikov, previously an important figure involved in international negotiations with um, the Western partners, has been a case in point here. So I think that this is actually uh, something that uh, Ukraine wants to send as a signal, but also realizes itself that this is a needed precondition for any kind of future European orientation and next steps when it comes to opening the accession talks and starting the enlargement procedure, which probably is going to take years, but still will include more significantly uh, chapters on judiciary, fight against corruption, promoting rule of law culture, and definitely not tolerating any of these malign practices that we have seen over the last couple of years, and with which the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky has dealt rather sharply and uh, suddenly, uh, as it might have uh, um, surprised part of the international community. Thank you.